Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey, everyone. We're so happy you're here. We have a very special guest today, Savannah Brooks. Hey, Savannah. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So how did you get started in publishing? I got my bachelor's degree in marketing management from Virginia Tech. And to be totally honest, it was a little bit of a sellout degree. I was in college just right after the recession. So everyone was like, okay, get a degree in something that'll make you a lot of money. And so after I graduated college, I worked in corporate America for a whopping seven months before (laughs) deciding that I could not cut it there. So I decided to get my MFA in creative writing. I'd always loved writing. And over the course of four years in that program, I realized I didn't really want to be a writer, but I had started working in publishing while I was doing my master's degree. So I had done everything from being an editorial intern at different publishing houses to being like a volunteer editor at some really cool artistic small publishing houses that we have here. And that's also where I landed my internship at the Jennifer DKR Literary Agency. And so I was an intern there for about a year and a half. And I was interning for another agent, being their reader mostly. And after about a year and a half, I sent him an email and I was like, hey, you know, I really like being a reader, but I don't feel like I'm doing very much agenting work. And he emailed me back and he was like, I think that you've got a great eye for this. I think you would be a good agent. I'll talk to Jennifer about it. And then the next day I got an email from Jennifer. She was like, all right, you want to set up a conversation about (laughs) moving into a role as an associate agent, which I will say is not actually very normal. So I don't want people to listen to that and be like, oh, it's going to be that easy because it usually isn't. But I really lucked out and I've been an associate agent at JDLA for about three and a half years now. I was going to ask if you knew at the time that wasn't normal. Honestly, probably not. When I was in high school, never thought about working in publishing. Like it seemed very New York, very far away, very inaccessible. And it was actually another person when I was getting my master's who was like, you're a good editor, you should go for this internship. And so I'm not even sure I totally knew what being a literary agent was, even when I got that internship, which again, is a pretty privileged perspective to be coming from. But I had done a lot of other work with like literary magazines and teaching and things like that. It's not that I didn't really put in the work. So when I got that I was pretty surprised that it was just that simple, but I didn't really know how hard it was for other people at the time. No. I think that's really interesting though, because you've studied writing, you did all the things and it sounds like you landed exactly where you're supposed to land. So I would just own it. You did it. It was that easy. (laughs) So tell us more about you. What do you do when you're not working? I am working a lot. I feel like this is true of everyone in publishing, but I actually work four different jobs. So I'm an agent and I also work in marketing for the Loft Literary Center, which is a part-time job I have. And that's a really big literary organization that we have here in Minneapolis. It's the perfect part-time job to have. Agents work on 100% commission in a lot of cases, and that's my case. So you need another job until you really get rolling. But for me, finding a part-time job that's still really involved in the literary arts was this perfect fit. I'm also a lecturer at the University of Minnesota, so I teach a course called The Business of Publishing, and I'm a boxing instructor too. So (laughs) 
The rare times when I'm not working, I'm trying to read for fun, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But mostly I'd really like being outside. You know, that's hard living in Minnesota, but it's finally getting a little warmer. I'm thinking I'm like, I'm the most boring person in the world. I don't do other things. (laughs) I'm a boxing instructor. But I have this theory that there is a lot of hidden aggressions in publishing. And I played rugby and I'm always like, every once in a while, I just want to tackle somebody randomly because everyone's so nice, but then we're all fiery. And I said we own it. I was an athlete my whole life. I played soccer and lacrosse and I actually started kickboxing when I was in high school. So I've been doing some sort of recreational fighting for the past 12 years years 12 13 years and i have like my personal training certificate and i was training in mixed martial arts for a while before covid so working out is also a job but i do spend quite a lot of time at the gym i love that me too so in an alternate universe where there is no publishing what would you do i love animals so obviously our listeners can't see this but i have an entire tattoo sleeve of animals i think that i probably would have really loved to do some sort of like rehabilitation work like wilderness rehabilitation that's probably my most realistic answer my favorite answer which i don't really know if i would have pursued is i would have loved to have been a stunt double i have my motorcycle license i love cars i love driving cars. I like any sort of like dangerous physical activity. If I don't know, 12 year old me was like, let's get into gymnastics and all these other really cool sports and let's move to Hollywood. Don't know if my parents would have really stuck that out with me. They probably would have been like, go like rehabilitate some frogs. You'll be happy. And I would have. Tell us about something you've changed your mind about during your time in the industry. I will say I am not an extremely patient person which is not a great trait to have if you want to work in publishing. And so really the hardest thing for me has just been understanding the process of publishing and what all goes into it and just how long things take. And when I started out, that was really frustrating. And it still is frustrating sometimes. But the more that I've learned, the more I understand how pivotal every single role is in the process and how every single person has a million projects that they're working on too. So contracts are a really good example. It can take six months to get a contract signed, which seems insane and is really hard for authors, especially. You talk to someone who works in a contracts department, you're like, oh, this is contract number 93 that you have to do in the span of a week. And so I don't know if that's so much changing my mind as just getting a much better understanding of the whole process. As far as something that I really purely changed my mind about, I think the way that I think about writing in society has just clarified a lot, especially coming from a master's degree in creative writing. Writing is such an act of like love and courage and is very important to people. But when I really started thinking about the books that I wanted to represent and the books that I want to put that much effort into bringing into the world, it's books that I feel like are operating in society. And so I started to think about writing as a much more socio-political movement than just as a labor of love, right? Like the books that I want to represent are books that are adding to some sort of larger conversation or that are helping certain people be seen, especially working in Kidlet, right? is bringing books out there that kids haven't had access to before, writing about things in ways that kids maybe haven't thought about before. I really put an emphasis on intentional writing. And that's not to say that I don't love my beach reads and love fantasy and love thrillers and rom-coms and everything else. That's usually what I read in my free time. But for the things that I represent, they're all very intentional. And I think of them all as a web working together. 
Thank you for really clarifying that. I think when they're looking at all the agents out there and who to pick, especially within a certain agency, like that's a type of thing that can really help a writer say, hey, I think this is going to be a good fit or not. So can you tell us about an aha moment when everything came together for you in publishing, of course? I can. So... I live in Minneapolis. One of my authors, his name is Ty, he also lives in Minneapolis. And the year 2020 in Minneapolis was extremely difficult. Besides everything else happening in the whole world, the murder of George Floyd just rocked this whole city and was a really hard time to live here. And Ty is a black man. And I had just started representing him like three weeks before George Floyd was murdered. And he and I are also very good friends. So I feel very comfortable talking about it on this. But he had met with an editor at Beaming Books, which is also here in Minneapolis. And he had mentioned that he was interested in writing a picture book about the Minneapolis uprising, so about all the protests that happened. But he wasn't really sure how to do it in a picture book format. And so he and this editor, her name's Jill, she's not with Beaming anymore, but he and Jill had this whole conversation about it and then brought me in. And Ty ended up writing what is his debut picture book, which is coming out in May. It's called Sarah Rising. And it's a picture book about a little black girl and her dad who go to a police brutality protest. And it is very political. The cover of the book is that the protesters are on one side and the cops are on the other side. And Sarah is like right in the middle. And it's, I mean, beautiful. Ty is a poet and is a very talented writer. But it is a book that I was like, unless an editor had approached us, I'm not sure that it would have published. People are definitely going to have thoughts and feelings about it that I'm sure they'll share on Amazon. So to have like a Minneapolis writer, an agent and publishing house, like all come together to put a book out in the world that I think is just critical. That was this really amazing moment for me and really did solidify what I want my own mission in publishing to be. I have gotten queries from people who are sending me picture books that are pretty intense and they'll say on there, like, I know that you will represent books that are harder. And that just warms my heart because I do want to be that person that people feel like they can go to. It's obviously never a given if you can get a book published or not, but I want to be the person who tries, like who tries to get that really important but more difficult picture book or chapter book or middle grade or young adult, whatever it may be. I want to help get that out there in the world. Thank you. I think people always admire the agents willing to try. We all know how hard it is, but just because it's hard doesn't mean you shouldn't try, especially if it's something really meaningful like that. So I'm glad you said that. I talk to so many writers and a lot of times the biggest thing is the fact that they're scared to write the book. They're scared to even begin the process because they're like, I'm on writer Twitter. I see what all the agents are looking for and it's not this. And I feel like there's no place in publishing for me. And I always tell them, you have to write it. You have to put it out there and at least try because you don't want regrets. If an agent falls in love with your book and really believes in it, they will help you as much as they possibly can to get it out there. So it's really, really awesome to hear that is your mission in publishing. Yeah, I tell this to my authors, too, that I truly believe that there's room in an author's career for every single book that they want to write. It just might not be the next book that you publish. So the really beautiful thing about writing is just the act of doing it makes you a better writer. You start to learn your own writing tics that you need to move away from. You learn from other writers. You start to find your own voice. 
And so the book that you go out on sub with to find an agent very well might not be that first book of yours that they sell. That's true for a lot of my authors. And it's obviously very heartbreaking in the moment. But in my opinion, what a good agent does is they sit down and they're like, all right, let's create a strategy for your career. Let's talk upfront about the possibility that this book won't sell. I have that conversation with writers on the phone call before I offer them representation. What are we going to do if this book doesn't sell? And I don't want it to sound pessimistic. I want it to be realistic because I want them to know that I'm thinking about that too. When do we start talking about your next book? When do we pull that first book and put it out on submission? Because for a debut writer, a tougher topic can be hard to get published or what you're talking about, Valentina, like something that's in the middle of genres or that agents aren't specifically wanting, like that can be harder to get published. But once you've published three or four books, it becomes a lot easier for editors to want to look at, you know, those stories that are a little bit different, that there isn't as much of a market for because you have a name behind you then. So that's how I try and get authors to look at it. Not that you're writing one book, but that you're starting an entire career and the process of shelving and reshelving and putting books in a different order. That's all a natural part of it for every single writer. Can you talk a little bit more about what's normal in that conversation? Because I think that's a question a lot of people should ask a potential agent. And so many people are afraid to. They're afraid that they say, if I go in saying this might not work out, is that going to tip off the agent that this might not work out? No, of course, we know that's a possibility. But what's a reasonable answer to what do we do if this book doesn't sell? Yeah, I think that's a great question, actually, because it means that an author is also thinking realistically. Probably the biggest thing that puts me off in a query letter is when an author is like, this is going to be the next great American novel, which my first question is, what do you even mean by that? When someone is so sure their book is going to sell, you want to be confident in your work and you want to love it. But that is a really unrealistic mindset going into publishing. If an author actually brings that question up to me, I'm going to be impressed that they're thinking about their career realistically. And I'm also going to have an answer for them. If you've gotten to the point of having a phone call with an agent, unless something goes very wrong on that call, they are prepared to offer you representation. That's why they're on the phone with you. And so they have already decided that they think they can sell the book. They might be wrong. They might not be able to sell it, but they believe that they can. So if an author asks, well, what if it doesn't happen? The agent is going to be like, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I can't sell it. They're going to be like, all right, well, chances are I've gone through this before. Any agent who's been in the industry for more than a few years almost certainly has had this exact same thing happen. Of course. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. After years of podcasting, have we talked about the possibility of once you get the agent of that book not selling? And I'm just curious, and maybe this is for Savannah or even for Jessica, is there like an average rate of once you get to that point, is it 75% sell that book? Is it 50%? Do we know those stats? No one's going to share them. I don't know those stats. Some genres, like right now, young adult books, very hard to sell. Memoir, always hard to sell. Picture books, probably a little bit easier to sell. At least it's easier to hear back from editors because it's 32 pages instead of 300. So I think a lot of things play into it. And just to how saturated certain markets are at the moment and how well certain genres are doing, that all plays a role. And also, I don't think you should penalize agents for taking risks. I think we should be proud of them for taking risks. Think you can't blame me for asking. No, of course you want to know. We love to be data-driven and talk about things in data. The times yeah. I've heard people asked, the standard answer is 7 out of 10 sell. I think that really depends what genre they're working in, the timing, if those are authors with track records, if they're authors with good track records, if they're debut authors, there are so many factors going into that. And I think it just really depends. And that doesn't mean that a later book for that author won't sell. I just mean like on a project by project basis. 
I have 20 clients right now and I have sold eight books. I have had three different projects get R&Rs from editors that they ended up turning down. And I have two different projects under an R&R right now. And so I think part of that too is that editors aren't taking as many risks because acquisition meetings are getting a lot harder. They don't have as much money. They don't have as many slots to fill. And you can only publish so many books per season. And so for editors, they don't really want to take a chance because they obviously love the book too. And they're more likely to come back with an R&R to be like, I need this book in the best shape possible before I can try and sell it to my team. And I have a proposal under R&R right now. So actually I have three projects. Tell us a story of the first time you saw one of your books for sale. Let's go to that final product. So the first book that I'm going to have out there in the world is publishing in May. It's Ty's book. The joy of working in picture books is that books that I sold in 2020 are coming out 2023 and 2024, which we love working with illustrators, but it takes a really long time. But I can say for Ty's book that's coming out and that's Sarah Rising, getting that arc was pretty emotional. I think just because the story is so tightly wound up in my own life. When the third officer building was burned down, I lived on that street. Like I watched that burn. I was part of the protesting. I was very involved in all of it. It's a story that's a little bit more tied to my own life than some of my others are. Not to say that I don't adore and fully believe in every single picture book. I think for me, that's just a really cool experience that not a ton of agents get. I know a lot of agents live in New York and represent books that take place in New York, but to have such a national, if not international, coming together of people and to be a part of it and then get to represent a book about it was just like very powerful. And really the point of this book is that a community is stronger when they come together and protesting is a way to show that you love and care about your neighbors. And that's something I feel very strongly living in Minneapolis too, because we are a very protest heavy city. What's one thing you wish writers knew about on your side of the desk? Probably that agents work for free, that until we sell a book, we don't get paid. And that advance that's split into two or three chunks, we don't get money until our authors get money too. So you're talking about getting paid half of an advance and getting paid the second half six months later, a lot of times. And so I totally understand when authors are frustrated that agents take months to respond to queries. But typically when I'm responding to queries, it's at 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night or on Saturday and Sunday because that's the only time I have to do it. And that's part of the job. I love the job. I knew I was taking that on. But every agent has gotten writers who respond and just like rude stuff. And I don't really engage with that. And I usually don't email people back unless I feel like there truly was some sort of misunderstanding. But a lot of times I just want to email them back and be like, I am doing this on my own time. (laughs) We're not getting paid for this. And it can be really hard and that the burnout is really real. I think right now a lot of writers are seeing more into it because of all the editors who have left publishing and all the agents who are really speaking out about just how tiring this job can be. And that for agents as well as writers, it is a really big creative process. So when we're editing, a lot of times we just need a full day to edit Because at least for me, it is really hard to switch between answering emails, editing a book, working on a contract, like those are all different parts of your brain. And so a lot of times agents are just taking whole days at a time to edit because we need to get into that creative mindset too. It's not just the author who's putting in the creativity then at that point. This is an issue in publishing in general, right? That it's so opaque and there are good people doing good work to try and make it more transparent, but it's just not happening very fast. So the fact that writers don't understand what agents do, I do not think is on writers. I think that's on publishing as an industry and the way that publishing for so long made synonymous being prestigious with being extremely secretive. 
Yes, a thousand percent to everything you just said. I'm so glad that we're in a place where we can talk about this now instead of shaming people for not feeling grateful for the barely living wage, for the incredibly long hours, and for the huge amount of emotional dedication that this job requires to even be average. Everyone talks about it intellectually, but emotionally, it's so hard and you have to be that connected to do a good job. And a lot of the toll too that writers feel, agents feel. I mean, an example of this is I was on vacation off last week. I was out in California visiting one of my friends for her birthday. And when I got back, I probably had 40 editor rejections in my inbox. And that's a whole part of the job, but also that's a really hard day back at the office. Every rejection that my authors get, I get first and I get all of them. And it can be hard. Like you want to be optimistic and you do know that going in, but we love and believe in these projects so much that when they don't get picked up, it hurts for us too. And we have to think of how to talk about it with the author. Yeah, they didn't like this element. Okay, that part's subjective. Yeah, okay, there's not really a pattern for this yet. Let's see if this turns into a pattern. Don't panic. Yep, please don't panic. I'm glad people are finally having a discussion of how incredibly hard it is. And I realize it must be really difficult to be out there thinking, because the vision is that we're just in these shiny buildings with town cars taking us places and going to fancy dinners all the time. And maybe if we have time, we'll sit down with a cup of tea and read a manuscript and put a few notes on it. And everyone thinks that's our day and it's not. So I can only imagine that people are like, oh, these people with their town cars and their fancy dinners are daring to complain because they have to edit for one hour a day. And yeah, if that's what it really was, the complaining would be silly, but that's not even close to what it is. And I don't know how we change that image. Yeah, I don't know either. The conversations about transparency, I think, are really helpful. I remember when I started in publishing, which when I started in publishing was about seven years ago, if I'm doing like COVID year math, which I might not be. But one of the big things is people are like, don't talk about the second job you have. Don't talk about your second job. Authors aren't going to want to sign with you if they feel like you're not giving like your all to this one job. And I am just a pretty transparent person. So when I signed people, I was like, by the way, I have at least one other job, if not multiple at various points in my life. Like I don't work for jobs because I love working 70 hours a week. I can tell you that much, but people didn't want you to talk about it. And now that people are talking about it, I do think writers are getting a much better idea of just how overworked agents are as well and how overworked editors are. And that is happening on all levels. Now it's almost impossible to be a working writer now too. So like we're all doing something else that is keeping us afloat. And I wish that publishing as an industry could look at everyone struggling and say, hey, we're all in this together a little bit more instead of being like, it's the editor's fault. It's the contracts department's fault. It's the writer's fault. It's the agent's fault. Like we're all working in a system that was created for already wealthy men who had wives to take care of their own household to come together in a creative way in person. Like that's what publishing was created for. And that is fine for the 1920s. It doesn't work like that anymore. And publishing just hasn't evolved the way that society has. And so of course we're all struggling. And I think we need to look at it structurally and try and get the people at the top of publishing to do the same instead of pointing to other entry-level people and being like, all right, well, you're not working hard enough. And for a brief period of time, a lot of agents were saying, don't sign with an agent who has another job because that means they're bad at their job. And that to me is just so upsetting. Yeah. Oh, I think it's very realistic. It took me a year and a half of being an associate agent before I sold my first book. 
and I sold it in a two book deal at auction. It took a little longer. I think on average, it maybe takes agents like one year, but it was a really good deal. I think another thing that you don't talk about is you spend probably a year building up your own list. And at that point, you're just taking on projects that you feel like you have the capacity to work on. So for some people that might only be like four or five clients at once, and also your clients take a while to do revisions. And so much of it has to do with timing and it has to do with subjectivity and people's own work ethic and ability to work quickly and what all they have going on in their lives. And so trying to standardize any part of it is just too generalized. It's too reductive. Tell us something that isn't as hopeless as writers fear it to be. Something that is really interesting that I have been talking about, it's actually this next week's topic for my class at the University of Minnesota, is different publishing platforms that are coming up. And a lot of people turn their nose up at self-publishing, and I too have varied thoughts about the different forms of self-publishing there are and just how certain platforms take advantage of authors. But being traditionally published used to really be the only way to get your work out there. And being traditionally published is hard. It's still hard. It's always going to be hard, but it's not the only avenue anymore. And there are really cool other ways to be like a social writer or a serialized writer, a digital writer, like just a lot of different ways that people can flex that creative muscle without it being like you're a creative writer or you're a technical writer, one or the other. And so I do feel like that's really cool. You look at social media and you look at other viral platforms and people are getting a ton of exposure there. And sure, you might not be making money off of your writing, but for a lot of people that actually isn't what they want to do anyway. Like they just have a really good story and they want to share it or they want to make some sort of, you know, impact on the world with their words. And there are other ways to do that now. It does take a little bit of a mindset shift, I think, for people who have always wanted to be traditionally published authors. And that's certainly not to say that people shouldn't give up on that dream. But also you can do multiple things at once. You can be querying an agent with one story. And as long as it's not the same story or a sequel or anything, like you can be putting another story out there in a different format. And so that's a way to just jumpstart the dream that it doesn't just come down to publishing houses and literary magazines anymore. Can you talk about some of your favorite platforms? Oh, what are my favorite platforms? You know, I feel like Wattpad is just like the classic platform that's still really big and has its own publishing imprint now, which is pretty cool and that you don't need an agent for, but you do need to be pretty popular on Wattpad. But this article that I'm having my students read is about a writer, among other professions, who puts her stories out on her OnlyFans site. And that is so interesting to me. I mean, of course, for a lot of people in publishing, it's just, oh my God, that's just so disgraceful. But I disagree. I think that's actually really cool. If you have a platform, and being able to use it for your own creative reasons. And I also feel like that's a really good way to humanize sex workers, right? To be like, this isn't just like a person for your own entertainment. This is also someone who's really creative and really smart and has these other stories to tell. So I feel like the more that people are able to bring their different avenues of interest together and show up on different platforms like TikTok or even One Line Wednesday on Twitter and things like that, they're small things. But when you are trying to get traditionally published and you're getting rejected by agents and editors and everyone else, having those little wins is so important to build on. I've heard people just really using those platforms as a testing ground. When I write like this, how do people respond? When I write like this, when I lean in here and finding your voice and really gaining your confidence 
before you get into the emotional turmoil that can be traditional publishing. And it is interesting that with streaming and everything else, we have no idea where publishing is going to go. It's an ever-evolving kind of beast. So being open to it as a writer is just a great way to explore. I always tell writers too, like really one of the best things you can do for your career is to find a writing group, but that's a pretty privileged perspective. Here in Minnesota, it's like 40% of the state doesn't have access to internet still. And you have a lot of rural towns, you have a lot of rural communities where you don't have a ton of writers. And so in that case, finding other writers can be really hard, but chances are you do have decent cell phone coverage and that might be the best way that you actually get in touch with people or the best way that you send your writing out there. And I think that it's just much more approachable for people who maybe don't have a traditional education or who have always felt like they're really far behind in English or in other writing skills too. It's a way to make the whole process of writing a book more accessible for people or process of even writing like a short story or a poem more accessible to people. Look at like the Instagram poets that you have too. Definitely different calibers, but at least they're putting their work out there and at least it's getting seen as opposed to like me, a 90s kid who just had really cringy diaries. Didn't we all? I hope so. <laughs> yes, I still have really cringy diaries. <laughs> there is a spoken word where you can take your worst diary entry and read it aloud to an audience. I don't even want to know what mine would be. <laughs> so say you have a writer with a great idea, but who's starting from scratch. What are your best first steps? I think that just starting is the hardest thing, a little bit what we were talking about earlier. And so any sort of class, if that's affordable, right, if that's financially feasible for you, or even just like article or things like that, that give you generative prompts is a really good place to start. Because if you start with your great idea and you try and put it on the page and you don't feel like you're ready, you're probably going to abandon your great idea because you're going to feel really down about it. But if you start by writing like a horror short story, right, or a love poem or like an essay about your favorite meal you had growing up or just like a chapter of a rom-com, you're much more likely to stick with that because it doesn't feel so pressing. It doesn't really matter in a sense because you're not going to try and put it out there in the world. And so you can write as much as you want. And once you start feeling confident in your writing abilities, then I would say tackle the story itself. Try and figure out if you're someone who needs an outline or not. Writing outlines I think is extremely helpful. I have some writers who don't write outlines and that's totally fine because they know themselves well enough, but at least go with it and see because it's a way to keep yourself from getting stuck. When you're in that scene and you can't figure out how it goes forward, you're not just like, okay, well, this whole project is garbage, goodbye. But I think just fostering some sort of love of writing first is going to be necessary because if you don't love doing it, if you feel like you're doing it for one story or because for whatever reason you feel almost like you have to, then when things get hard, you probably are not going to have the motivation to pull yourself through it. Let's end on a happy note. What are some things you're looking forward to, happy about, feeling creative about? I have really wonderful authors who I represent who have really like wonderful and important stories to tell. I do think it should be noted that the past two years have actually been the strongest years in publishing, have been the strongest years for book sales that we've seen in over a decade. 
And so while things feel very doom and gloom, I think it's important to remember that like books are selling, right? Publishing houses are making money, which does translate into advances, which does translate into how many books that they can publish in a season. And so hopefully we're actually going to see an upturn from the pandemic monetarily. And I also do think that with people having to work remote and just a lot of the really critical conversations that are happening around the industry, I do think that things are going to start changing. It's going to happen glacially like everything else in publishing. But there are a lot of really good people doing really good work in this industry, finding the courage to do it, finding the platform to do it, finding the community to do it that didn't exist before. And I do think that things are changing. One of the things that I tell my students is that you need to think of yourself as the next generation of change makers. If you enter the industry, think really critically about how do you want things to look different next year than they look this year. And the more people who enter the industry who have that mindset, the better things are going to be. And I do think people entering the industry now have that mindset. I agree. I don't think they think it's going to be easy, which it won't. But I do think they're going in with that mindset. And not that I want to put it all in the young, energetic generation, but that's where our hope is now. Savannah, where can we find you online? So you can find me online. I have a website. It's SB, as in Savannah Brooks, litagent.com. And that will lead you to other various places. You can also find me on my agency website, which is just jdlit.com. And then my Twitter handle is the same as my personal website. It's just at sblitagent. You can find me on various other platforms if you look hard, but those are really the only ones that I frequent, we'll say. And what are you looking for in your inbox? I actually am currently trying to build up more of my adult list. I do focus pretty heavily in KidLit, but I also represent adult commercial fiction and rom-coms and thrillers and horror mysteries of the genre side, as well as contemporary fiction. And then I'd say on the kidlit side, what I'm most looking for now is middle grade. And my taste in middle grade is pretty specific. It's really just that sort of like Rick Riordan presents this action adventure, mythology driven, non-Western, which does include Greek and Roman. (laughs) I get a few queries that are like, you're looking for non-Western mythology. Here's Greek mythology. That is not accurate, but that's okay. I'll take a look at it anyway. But that is really what I'm looking for. I'm also always looking for informational stories about different cultural holidays and other places in the world. And I love to learn. So if your story teaches me things, there's a good chance I'm going to want to read it. Oh, Savannah, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. This has been very fun. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.